Welcome to the Black Sparrow Media Internet Broadcast Network. For over 100 years, radio has been at the forefront of new technology. Ham radio operators around the world will have their annual Field Day event June 25th and 26th. Field Day is the national open house of amateur radio, and you are invited. Come be a part of the science, skill, and service Ham Radio brings to your community. Find a Field Day site near you at www.arrl.org slash field day. And welcome. You have tuned in to episode number 171 of Linux in the Ham Shack, and I am your host, Russ K5TUX. And from out in beautiful red sky at night country in Billings, Montana, is Bill NE4RD. Hello, hello. We don't have Cheryl tonight. She is uh, otherwise disposed at the moment, but she might pop in later. We'll see. We're, we're hoping for a recipe from somebody before the end of the show, so yeah. <laughs> uh, if it's not her, it, it may be somebody else. That is what it is. But anyway, we've got a whole bunch of stuff to talk about tonight, so we should probably dive into our amateur radio topics for the night, and the first one is uh, Field Day, which is coming up very, very soon now, in a couple of weeks. We will have Field Day again for 2016, the ARRL event to get everybody involved in ham radio around the country and around the world. So, Bill, talk about Field Day. Yeah, Field Day. It's the most popular on-the-air event. And as you heard from our entry PSA there, uh, they're definitely publicizing it as such. More than uh, 35,000 radio amateurs will gather with their clubs and groups or simply with friends, and they'll operate from just about any location. I know we got uh, several locations uh, or groups heading out to, to the mountains and stuff like that here in uh, Montana. And, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great event. It's a fun time to pull out your uh, portable gear and, and, and make sure it all works. Portable gear? I don't have portable. any portable gear. <laughs> Got to have portable gear. <laughs> you know, like a generator. <laughs> Isn't your portable gear, like, and... still in the car from the last time you operated portable? No, no, I actually got the rig on the desk finally. I am using my portable antenna outside because I haven't uh, finished putting up the uh, permanent one again. <laughs> so uh, right now I'm six meters only uh, for the contest uh, this past weekend. All right. Well, that's so what are you going to operate on field day? So on field day, uh, I'm actually heading up with uh, our group, the uh, Big Sky Contesters, and I'm going to bring my uh, my Yezu, uh, an N6BT uh, Bravo 5K for uh, 10 through uh, 20 and a small little Honda generator, and uh, I think the other guys are going to bring in some uh, some other stuff there. We're, we're renting a, a cabin up in the National Forest north of White Sulphur Springs, Montana, and uh, just going to make a little weekend deal out of it. So a- did you go to Montana just so you could do all of this weird ham radio stuff, or was there <laughs> like a real reason for being there? <laughs> Oh, you know, I'm employed out here, so you know, I gotta gotta take the take the rest with it. Uh, you know, Montana is a as a is an interesting state. There's so much uh, so many activities you can do in the winter and the summer, and uh, uh, definitely we're we're taking advantage of it for our hobby. Well, that's cool. I haven't decided yet what I want to do for field day myself. Every year, I decide, or I think I decide that I'm going to go wander out to one of the local club stations or something like that and get involved. Uh, and help out operating for, you know, one of the 5As or 10As or whatever that are set up in various locations around here. But then I've always thought I would love to run like a one station, not because I'm, you know, involved in contesting per se, but just to be my own sort of field day entity for once. And I've I've never actually done that. So I'm not sure what I'm going to do this year. Well, they have classes for just about everything. I mean, if you just want to run at the house on regular, uh, you know, commercial power, they have, uh, you know, that, that division. So you just compete against those people. You got people that'll run like a multi single out of their own house. Um, uh, some people that'll just try their, uh, you know, whole, whole house generator and run the, run the shack on a generator. Got a guy down the street. He likes running all his stuff off of a pair of uh, car batteries. So uh, you can do just about anything. Uh, just, uh, you know, just 
you know, the purpose of the event is to is to test out your emergency capability, and it's not really technically, uh, you know, a contest in, in the meaning of you know just for contesting. It really is to promote, uh, you know, testing out your your emergency capability of your your shack. Yeah, and I've got three generators here, and I can actually probably kill two birds with one stone, which is a testing out the generators to make sure they're actually still working. And be powering my rig off of the generator so I can actually operate emergency power, which is kind of cool because there's a multiplier involved in pers- in uh, emergency power. Yeah, you get extra points for a lot of different things, and you know, definitely need to check the rules because even like sending a tweet out about your uh, about your station and and what you're doing is is considered uh, like uh, social media points. I think there's like 50 points or something like that. So uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, little things that you can get extra points for that people should be aware of when they're. Uh, uh, trying to make an event out of it. And one of the things when I was in my original club, when I first got licensed, was media coverage. There's uh, quite a bonus for media coverage because they like to promote the event. There are all kinds of multipliers and stuff like that. If you're actually going for the win, and no group that I ever participated with really cared about the point total. Uh, it was just to get people together, show off ham radio, practice uh, the art of ham radio, do the emergency preparedness stuff, and then also just make contacts around the world. So no matter how you participate, it's it's a great idea. Everybody should do it. It's in a couple of weeks. Uh, Last weekend in June is when field day is. Now, when we were operating, we never did digital mode, so I don't know what the rules are on digital mode. Yeah, they have RIDI. Uh, I believe RIDI is definitely uh, one of the modes you can use. Um, CW, voice. I'm not sure about PSK31. Um, but uh, for sure, Riddy. You can use Riddy, and uh, I think you get extra points for satellite contacts. And uh, some uh, groups will qualify for a free VHF station, where you don't have to count it in your uh, station count if you're going to run a VHF station. All right, very cool. We also have a note here that there's going to be an official field day hashtag for Twitter. So if you're live tweeting your event when you do it, you can use uh, hash a That's Fox Delta for field day. And Johnny in the chat room in 4JEK says, a buddy, of mine, a buddy of mine and I are going to jump around to a bunch of different sites to check out how the rest of the district does field day. The last time I did anything for field day, that's exactly what I did. I went around to all the clubs and saw what they were doing. Some of them were just a couple of people in a 10 by 10 canopy, you know, operating a station off a battery. And other folks had a big, you know, county sheriff command unit where they were running like five radios and had antennas, you know, a hundred feet in the air and all kinds of stuff. So yeah, everybody does it in their own kind of way. It's kind of fun. Yeah, it's a great event for sure. All right. So we got some more field day stuff and this is about a kids thing and some special event stations that you can contact while you're doing your field day. So let's, uh, let's find out about kids in field day. Yeah, this is a special event station K1D for field day. This is a, uh, you know, mainly the uh, the Lee family. I don't know if you've been following. Uh, I think they're on Tom's podcast, uh, the the Amateur Radio Roundtable. The Lee family's been on there quite a bit because uh, they have uh, Faith Hannah A4FH, Hope KM4IPF, and uh, Grace KM4TXT. Those are uh, his daughters, and they're all licensed amateurs. And uh, they'll be operating uh, along with uh, Zachariah, WX4TVJ, and I'm not sure if he's one of their kids, too. <laughs> <laughs> I know I've seen the girls on there. I don't know if I've seen him, but as you, they're probably all their kids. <laughs> and they're, uh, they're, they're all under the age of uh, 12, I believe, or, well, at least they were licensed under the age of 12. And they'll be operating K1D and also K4G. And they'll be uh, putting out a special uh, commemorative QSL card if you work both stations. So the K4G, I believe, is their get-on-the-air station, which is another one of those special freebie stations you get when you're doing a public uh, a public uh, effort and field day. So definitely uh, help support the uh, youth and amateur radio by uh, finding these guys on the air and gals and, and work them and uh, help uh, put them in the log and uh, promote uh, amateur radio for the youth. We always like to talk about youth and amateur radio because, of course, they are the future of ham radio. And a lot of times, you know, there's a stereotype about going to your local ham radio club and you wonder about the longevity of most of the members because many of them have probably been licensed since before World War II or whatever. Uh, but we need to get the youth involved. And early on in this podcast, Harrison, VE2HKW, um, was doing a podcast 
called Teen Radio Journey because he was licensed at a young age, and I, I don't even know if he's really participating in the hobby anymore. I'd be kind of interested to hear from him again. We've heard from many young amateurs and lots of the podcasts around, like Tom's and various other ones, talk to uh, people who get licensed very young because they know that those folks are the ones who are most interested in it and who are going to push the hobby going forward into the future. So see if you can find K1 Delta on the air, Kilo 1 Delta. And what was the other one? Kilo 4 Golf. So look for those while you're on your field day rounds and get the special commemorative cards from uh, all the kids doing field day and and, uh, promoting amateur radio for youth around the world. Moving on from some field day topics, we've also got a story about the U.S. White House has honored an amateur radio uh, person, uh, a woman, in fact, Limor Freed, Alpha Charlie 2, Sierra November, as a champion of change. Uh, she, while studying engineering at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, decided to create a company focused on supporting learning electronics for makers of all ages and skill levels. In 2005, she founded Adafruit which has grown to now employ more than 100 individuals in their 50,000-square-foot New York City factory. Lemore is committed to building both innovation and community and is known for creating resources for learning. She was the first female engineer on the cover of Wired magazine and was awarded Entrepreneur Magazine's Entrepreneur of the Year in 2012 and was also on the New York City Industrial Business Advisory Council. Adafruit is a 100% woman-owned country. <laughs> country. Company, <laughs> company. I got. I was so close to not screwing that story up. <laughs> had to yeah, be on the I last mean, uh, word. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Adafruit is a is a great great location for uh, electronic kits and parts and a wealth of information for uh, for makers for sure. I know they put out all kinds of uh, all kinds of video casts and and everything else of the things that they're working on there, the new products they're getting, and uh, it's really a really a, a wealth of information that they put out in the uh, electronics field. Yeah, I've been to the site quite often. We actually mentioned them a couple of episodes ago about the Pi Top. They're actually releasing a uh, laptop or a netbook, I guess, that's uh, based on a Raspberry Pi. You basically plug a Raspberry Pi into it and you have a laptop, so it's kind of a cool thing. Uh, they have lots of stuff to tinker with there, so if you're looking for electronics and kits and, and things to occupy your time, Adafruit is definitely the place to go. And I know we haven't mentioned it up till now, but links to all the information about the various topics we've talked about so far will be in the show notes. So check those out if you need additional information. And I believe Adafruit is just at adafruit.com, so it shouldn't be too hard to find that one. Anyway, Google is also your friend. That story actually came from the Southgate Amateur Radio Club as well. So we want to make sure we mention them because they are a great resource for uh, amateur radio news. Yeah, a great aggregator of news for, for us. Hey, I'm going to uh, shut my garage real quick because I can hear that birds chirping. Yeah, the, the birds are wonderful, though. <laughs> well, if you like them, I'll just leave it Well, open. no, I don't know how good they are for the podcast, but I mean. <laughs> I just hear them echoing, and I'm like, oh, I, I should really shut the garage door. So uh, I'm going to mute and be right back for a second. It was soothing in a way. Hearing all the- <laughs> it's like, yeah, we're in the country. We're, uh, we're recording this out in the open. <laughs> yeah, Johnny in the chat room said he thought it was part of the show. It was just kind of the ambiance. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't hear it clicking too many times. It just uh, all of a sudden I was like, "Wow, it's just really echoing back." I'll have to I'll have to put a badge on the website that says like "Now with three percent more chirping birds." So. <laughs> That'll be great. <laughs> all right, so now we're going to move away from our specifically amateur radio topics and move on to open source topics. And here we're going to try and take a shallow dive into a deep topic and talk about a little bit about what's been going on with uh, Google v. Oracle, or I'm sorry, Oracle v. Google. You you have your finger on the pulse of this thing. I know you follow it a little bit closer than I do. So um, it was just interesting. You know, I didn't really want to talk about it too much, you know, because we had mentioned it uh, before. And as uh, hopefully everybody knows by now that uh, Google did win the case, or uh, we could say that Oracle lost one or the other, and uh, I was just really intrigued about all the the various uh, fud that came out afterwards uh, from the pro Oracle and the pro Google people, and I kind of just went through and uh, gathered a bunch of different articles, and I I pasted them in our show notes, and of course I've I've struck out a bunch of stuff that I don't even want to mention, but. I, I just wanted to go over some of these comments because I, I just thought they were so striking of the positions of the people. You know, let's start with the, a pro Oracle 
Annette Hurst, I believe she was on the actual uh, a team of uh, lawyers for Oracle. And uh, you know, her comment after the verdict was, developers beware. You may think you got a win yesterday, but it's time to think about more than your desires to copy freely when you sit down at the keyboard. This must be all the people that are getting their code off of like, you know, uh, Stack Exchange and stuff like that. <laughs> I'm coding by Stack Exchange and GitHub <laughs> or Stack Overflow, right? <laughs> yeah, just putting a bunch of random projects together and creating um, a project out of it. Sure, why not? Yeah, we have another one here by Joe Mullen, and he kind of he kind of did a more um, oh, let's say a more journalistic approach to the story and didn't really take a side, but uh, it was uh, he, he ended ended his uh, article with a simple uh, Oracle's simple narrative about copy copied code ran into another all-American rule. This would favor Google. You don't get to change the rules at halftime. And this is in reference to the fact that they were doing this when Sun owned or, uh, Java. And when Oracle took over, we discussed, what, six months later, they had a, a court case in place. So they were trying to change the fundamentals of the relationship between Google and Java and Java and Sun. So uh, I thought that was more of a, a level-headed approach. We have a uh, pro-Oracle, another pro-Oracle from Peter Bright. He says, the jury's decision to extend the fair use protection to even non-interoperable usage goes a step further, making copyright on software, of which APIs are part, weaker still. And I'm, I'm definitely sure that that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, the Internet is basically built on APIs. Uh, you wouldn't have software that can talk to all these different uh, services without some level of interpretation of usage of APIs. Obviously, you can go on GitHub and see all kinds of uh, software approaches to accessing APIs, and some of them are more creative than others. My, if, my uh, whole thing about this, and I've mentioned it the last time we talked about this whole lawsuit thing, was that I thought the purpose of publishing APIs was so that you were allowing people to use them. That, that's what an API is for. So that the fact that they're trying to or a copyright or, or limit use or limit fair use of, of an API seems exactly opposite of the purpose of an API. Right. And, and Google wrote APIs, their, their own custom APIs for accessing the internals of Java. And that's really the, the scope of it is that, you know, there's a provided API, then there's the API they wrote to make things easier to plug and play into that architecture. Fair use of them creating their own APIs is what was being uh, tried. Yeah, and I understand that, though. But so so they wrote their own code, so no one can copyright their own, you know, the code they wrote because they wrote it. And they wrote it to make easier integration with Java, something that already had an API published for it. Again, I'm not I'm not sure where Oracle is coming from this. I mean, they publish their own API. They they give access to the Java implementation through their API. Google said, "Well, that's okay. We'd like to have our own way to access Java." So they wrote one. I'm sorry, I just don't see where the problem is. But of course, where there's money involved, there you go. <laughs> Lawsuits yeah. will follow. Yeah, and I think we'll end on a, a pro Google from uh, Stephen uh, J. Vaughn Nichols. Going back to the fact that uh, Oracle is based on uh, a relational database management system that IBM wrote originally. And uh, he finished off with, if Oracle does win when it's all said and done, perhaps IBM should consider suing Oracle for 37 years of back licensing fees for the Oracle database. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, can, I, can I be in the front row of that court case? I'd like to be. Yeah, yeah, I can't uh, can't wait to see that. But uh, you know, I, that's really all I wanted to touch on. I mean, yeah, everyone has their own opinion on it. I just I thought it was funny all the uh, uh, all the fud being pushed out by uh, at least the Oracle side, and then Google's like, you know, the pro Google people are definitely like pro Google. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you know, when it comes to court cases, there's going to be people on every side of the issue, and I just hope that IBM doesn't turn into the next SEO and uh, push for further litigation because we just need to let this fall where it may. I guess I guess from our perspective, we would consider this a victory, but, I mean, we'll find out how it shakes out eventually. Yeah, I see uh, N4JK is mentioning DB2. This actually refers back to uh, IBM's System R. So this is, this is old, old stuff here. So this is before DB2 and all that stuff. Hey, let's move on to a new topic. Hey, that sounds good. And I actually took a look at this website. It's fantastic. 
like you say, it's it's a little basic, but I mean, for somebody just coming to Linux, it's wonderful. It's a site called Linux Journey. Even if you know or think you know everything there is to know about Linux, you should probably like just check this out as a refresher. But if you don't know anything about Linux, linuxjourney.com is a kind of a cool place to start because it gives you some real true fundamental things that you should know about the Linux operating system, or I should say the GNU Linux operating system, because Linux is just the kernel. This is the GNU part of GNU Linux. Uh talks about real basic things that you need to know, and particularly from the command line, it's important to check some of these things out. It's a, it's a nice Web 2.0 looking website, well-constructed, and stuff like that. Talks about how to do things like edit files, get into the command line, set up permissions, users, look at processes, kill processes, package management, booting, file system structure, uh, managing devices, and of course the Linux kernel itself uh, are part of this. Um, The init systems that are available, processes in managing system resources, and logging as well. So there are lots of great things here. Uh, it's presented in a real easy way, just like a chapter at a time with some subchapters. You go through, you learn a few things. Even if you, like I said, think you know everything there is to know about GNU Linux already, you should probably check this out because there's probably something you've forgotten. And it, it doesn't cover, though, the tabs versus spaces the argument. <laughs> no, you're trying to get into holy wars. It doesn't It doesn't do uh, Vim versus Emacs either, I'm sure. Yeah, so. exactly. Yeah, it stays away from those areas, and, and it keeps it very educational. And, and I had a good time just going through the real basic stuff. I was like, wow, this is really, really well put together. And I, I think it's going to grow uh, exponentially from here. I mean, they've done such a great job with it. I, I can't see how it, uh, how, how it couldn't get even better. No, and it's real basic stuff. That I, I clicked on a couple of these topics just at random to kind of see what was in them. The first one I clicked on was processes because I was curious what they had to say about processes because that's one of the topics that's kind of not really addressed when you talk about Linux. Everyone sort of understands that applications are a process and that there are processes running on machines, but unless you're actually thinking about processes specifically, you don't really worry about that. Just that section goes through how to look at processes that are running on your machine, uh, literally specific flags to hand to the process subsystem command to look and see what's running on your system, how to identify runaway processes, how to kill processes. And it even goes into some depth about the signal structure. And that's actually kind of an advanced topic in, in, um, the Unix world, how to manage processes and what signals they will accept and what those signals actually do for processes. So it does dive down a little bit. It's not just a 10,000 foot overview. You actually will learn a few things, even if you are a true Unix guru. So everybody should check this out and I hope they keep working with it. I hope they keep adding documentation this will probably one day be an outstanding resource to fall back on as time goes on. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, cool. So we're going to move on to, I think, one of only two topics that I put in here tonight. (laughs) It's just been (laughs) uh, stupid busy in here uh, in my life. But I thought this one was kind of interesting, so I threw it in here. And it's not going to affect a whole lot of people who are listening to this, but you might find it fascinating that this is actually possible. I titled it, Anyone Can Grab Crypto Keys from the Air. And in this particular instance, I'm not talking about intercepting a Wi-Fi transmission and decoding the key exchange process. In a paper published by the Association for Computing Machinery, researchers from Tel Aviv in Israel uh, have detailed how inexpensive kit can be used to harvest 4,096-bit encryption keys from a distance of around 30 feet. By using a parabolic microphone, the team was able to pick up the coil line from a churning CPU. The trouble is the mic is a little obvious if you're trying to be sneaky, so they managed to get the same result from a mobile phone's microphone placed about a foot away from a spied-on PC. In both cases, it took about an hour of listening to get the 4096-bit RSA key. 
The team recommends encryption software writers build in blinding routines that insert dummy calculations into the cryptographic operations. And after discussing with the team, the GPG, or GNU Privacy Guard, now does this. So it's not all bad news about the research. It does serve as a reminder that you don't just need to check your software for security, but you need to check around your hardware for maybe some mysterious gadgets that might be actually listening to your CPU processing key generation. So yeah, so if you process, post-process this podcast, you can probably pick up all of our keys. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you can hear that, actually, if you listen to something that may be picking up a little bit of RF interference, you can kind of pick that up. But to actually... Oh, yeah. To actually sit a microphone from a cell phone next to a computer and listen to the CPU churning out the crypto key is, <laughs> I just read this and I was like, I think I'm pretty sure my jaw had fallen <laughs> wide open. <laughs> it's like, I can't believe this is the way you can hack people. It's almost like social hacking, right? <laughs> yeah, almost. I mean, it, it's a technical solution for sure, but. Wow, just having a microphone next to a computer can tell when your CPU is generating a cryptographic key. Wow. All right. So moving on to a little bit deeper dive into techno. Well, actually, that's a fairly deep dive, but we're not going into the uh, the ethics or the mechanics of decoding uh, CPU processors uh, uh, for hacking GPG keys. But we are going to talk about Docker a little bit. And this is something I don't think we've really ever talked about on the show, but Docker is a virtualization technology. It allows you to take a single Linux kernel and create virtual application instances in a Linux environment to create self-contained and many would maintain highly secure operational environments for web apps or uh, any other thing. And now Rancher has come along that has created an operating system on top of Docker to facilitate the deployment of, of Docker instances. Yeah, so uh, Rancher's been around for a little while. They just recently went to 1.0, uh, probably, I think it was tagged about 19 days ago. It's a Docker container itself. So you install Docker on your, your operating system, like mine is here on Ubuntu. And Rancher allows you to spin up these containers quite easily from a, a web browser. So basically it creates an instance of, uh, of an image, the Rancher OS image, running this web app that allows you to build uh, what they call catalog, well, not stacks, let's say stacks. So you build an application stack. So in my particular instance here, I have uh, I, I built Rocket Chat, which everybody, it's, a, it's a similar to uh, Slack and stuff like that. And uh, you, can, uh, you can go into their catalog and you set your system up as a host for these stacks. And it's like a one-click install. You get uh, the stack will be completely set up. Like in Rocket Chat, it sets up a Mongo instance and a Rocket Chat instance and then a Hubot uh, instance to control the little bot. So the nice part about this is uh, you really don't have to set up the configuration files yourself. If you've ever done any Docker setups, you, you do have to do a little configuration, um, setting up the Docker files, setting up your environments. This, uh, this makes it point-and-click simple easy to uh, try stuff out. And I don't really do a lot of DevOps stuff at my job. But I've been kind of playing around with it, and I, I see it as a, as a great way to experiment with different uh, applications that you don't necessarily want to muddle your system up with. They have a huge catalog of stuff that's already built, and then you can also custom build your own catalog of stuff in here and then launch it. And the nice part about it is, is, is if you want to take this and push it out to, let's say, Amazon Web Services and EC2 or Google or any one of those uh, places that do containers up on the web, you can actually deploy your application quite easily through this interface. So you can set everything up in a local instance and then push it out to the web, and then you, you have you know everything you've con configured locally running out on the web. I'm, I'm just recent to it, so I'm not an expert on it by any means. But uh, I, think it's a, I think it's a really cool tool. And, uh, you know, hey, it's, it's open source. It's free to get. It's fun to play with. And, uh, you know, before it goes completely commercial, I'd get into it. Because <laughs> it definitely is commercial quality. Yeah, I, I highly uh, recommend playing around with it. I mean, there's other tools similar like Chef and some other, uh, you know, kind of container building tools out there. But this one, I think, is uh, the easiest to use because of the interface to uh, build these uh, these stacks. Well, Docker is GPL, is it not? 
Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we don't have to worry too much about the commercialization, because you can always get the free version. And, of course, if Rancher decides to go commercial, then they'll be forkable because they're already built on Docker. So there you go. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so I, I think you're safe, but uh, as with anything, I'd give it a try and, and, and take a look at it. It, it, is, it is quite neat. Matthew, KD9BWJ, in the chat room has mentioned that on OpenFosTraining.com, he has done some documentation of using OpenVPN and Docker on digital drop or digital ocean droplets. That might help you out if you're if you're getting into this uh, crazy world of virtualization and um, want to try out some of these cool technologies and and take a real deep dive into the future of computing because this this container thing this this docker idea is crazy popular in the open source world right now because this is i think this is the future of virtualization we'll see it we'll see where it goes at the last conference that i went to there were some folks who were talking about using docker in such a fine-grained way that they were spinning up instances of apache to answer a single request and then spinning it down as a Docker instance. Yeah, they already have in their catalog OpenVPN as one of the uh, one of the catalog stacks. So you could spin up a, an OpenVPN HTTP Basic a Digest or an LDAP OpenVPN instance, and they also have uh, in the infrastructure you can also push it directly to DigitalOcean. So you can build it here, get everything set up, and then push your containers up to DigitalOcean. Very better, cool right? stuff. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's just really, really cool. <laughs> so uh, I would definitely check it out if you're new to it. I think it makes it easy if you're unco- you know, not really comfortable with uh, using Docker quite yet. Um, you really only have to get one Docker instance running, and it's a single command line to get it all started after you install Docker. And then you just browse to it with your web browser. Yeah, it's, it's pretty slick. Yep, and links to information about Docker and Rancher will, of course, be in the show notes. There. And there are lots of good tutorials about there about using both. So just uh, Google it. You'll you'll find whatever you need. Yeah, and it goes to here. I'll just read the quick list. Amazon EC2, Azure, DigitalOcean, Exascale, Google, Hyper-V, OpenStack, Packet, Rackspace, SoftLayer, Ubiquity, VMware, vCloudAir, and VMware vSphere. And, so it can do just about everything. And since you mentioned it, and you know Coos is going to say something, if I don't say something, I have to I have to say it. It's Azure. Azure. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. He says he teases his coworkers with that pronunciation of Azure. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So it's there you so go. Alluring. That, that's for PD4K8. It's Azure. Azure. That sounds sexier. I like it. It is. It's especially sexy when Pete does it, you know, because yeah. he's, a, he's a sexy mofo. So, all right. <laughs> so let's talk about Loki. Yeah, Flash Topic. Hey, I just saw this in Twitter. I had to bring it out real quick. Uh, Loki Beta is here. Uh, you can now uh, test drive uh, the latest version of Elementary OS built on Ubuntu 16.04. It comes with uh, GTK 3.18, Vala 0.32, and uh, Linux kernel 4.4. It's kind of different, because was Elementary OS not one of the ones that was based on CentOS or Red Hat? Correct, yeah. It's it's just been an Ubuntu build. Okay, so very cool. Wow, that that went too fast. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's an actual Flash topic. It just went by like that. Flash, Flash, yeah. I mean, I I like Elementary. It's pretty, but I'm not running it right now. I do run it on one of my older boxes. And Matthew in the chat room says, Azure, pronounced backdoored by NSA. <laughs> <laughs> isn't, isn't the entire internet backdoored by the <laughs> Pretty NSA? Pretty much. That's what I've heard. Yep. <laughs> uh, apparently, they're the ones with the cell phones listening to crypto keys on uh, laptops, too. So there you go. Uh, they can sniff the entire backbone of the internet. I don't think they need to worry. <laughs> Sniffing backbones. It sounds vaguely, I don't know, greasy. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So moving on from our open source topics we're going to move into linux in the ham shack and this first one is actually pretty cool i checked this out after bill put it in the show notes uh it's uh an application that's a contest logger and maybe it'll be the contest logger we can start telling everyone about uh this one's written by torsten clay november 4 oscar charlie whiskey and it's called so2 sdr which doesn't sound like the name of a contest logger if you ask me um (laughs) 
but it incorporates software-defined radio spectral displays. It runs under Linux and Windows. Version 2 has separate executables, SO2SDR, which is the program itself, and SO2SDR-BANMAP for the SDR spectral display. It can be used separately from SO2SDR if you so choose. So I played with this a little bit, but let me hear your thoughts before I give you mine. Yeah, I checked it out, and uh, I thought it was pretty slick. Uh, so I, I contacted the author, and I just asked him some questions like, you know, what's his roadmap and w- what's he having problems with? And uh, he builds this under Linux, and he says he has problems right now with the Windows interoperability. He says uh, the QT is not playing nicely with him when he flips back and forth between uh, the Windows builds and the Linux builds. But uh, it's, a, it's a great, great logger. Uh, the contest selection is kind of limited to the ones he likes and that he participates in. So I would expect to see probably more of those added as things progress. Uh, it is set up to be a single op two radio by default. When you first install it, it sets up two dummy radios on there. So if you are an SO2R type person, uh, this would be a, a definite alternative to, uh, I think, one we've talked in the past, uh, TR for Linux. Um, that would be your other option for SO2R and Linux for uh, for contesting. Um, the only thing it doesn't do is digital right now, and he is working on the digital aspect of it. I don't know whether he's going to plug it into FL Digi or some other LNPSK or some other Linux QT program or what, or if he's going to build his own. Since he's already got the uh, SDR component in there, it's probably not too far off since he can you know do all the FFT work and stuff like that. And he said he's looking for people to just test it and uh, send them feedback and log bugs into GitHub and uh, help them in that way. He's not asking for any contributors at this point. It definitely looks promising. It's the closest thing to that I can find to N1MM that I really like when I contest. Yeah, I would I would definitely check it out. It's a it's a GitHub project and it's all in C and with the QT libraries running the GUI. All right, I'm going to have to school you here. It's not QT. It's cute. Oh, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I took this out actually after you mentioned it, and I downloaded it from the Git repo, did the build on it. I had a couple of missing libraries. I needed to install libffTW3 and port audio. But once I did that, everything built fine. I was able to start it up. Uh, the interface is very familiar. If you've looked at any other kind of contest loggers, it's pretty straightforward. You've got a couple of menu options up the top for setting up your rig control, setting up your station identification, and all that kind of thing. And then the interface is fairly straightforward. And it's an N1MM style logger in the sense that you can actually enter configuration parameters into the call sign field when you want to thing do things like change mode, change band, and stuff like that. Uh, it is set up for CW, uh, sideband, and not much else. And I think there were about 15 or 20 contests that were that were listed there. And as you say, those are the ones that he's really familiar with, presumably since this is an open project, that uh, more contests will be added as things go forward, either by Torsten or by uh, other folks who decide to use this. But it's fairly straightforward, and obviously the name comes from the single operator two radio configuration that this is designed for, which is kind of nice because you can have two bands, two modes set up and logging simultaneously. Uh, of course, does Cabrillo or Cabrillo format ADIF and all of that. Uh, links with Hamlib, so you have rig control and also uh, rig cat and, and other integration modules for uh, connecting to your radios, keeping track of uh, frequencies, so on and so forth, and dupe checking and all of that. And it, it does everything in a kind of separate window. Uh, you can have your uh, band maps in separate windows, there was another thing you could have in separate windows too. Was it logging or dupe checking for individual yeah, radios? You got dupe sheets for your one and two, uh, your right. both rigs, your band map. Your it also has the DX cluster. And uh, I didn't get for, the DX cluster to work. I tried to enter dxusa.net, which is the DX cluster I traditionally use, and it didn't come up for me. So I'm not sure what what the deal was with that. Let me see. I didn't. Uh, yep, it's not working for me either. So hey, it's still uh, still work in progress. He's working on it and. Uh, his contact information is also in GitHub, or you can find him on QRZ. QRZ, QRZ. <laughs> I think that's where I found his email address first. I went there, right. and I was like, ah. Well, look, we already have feedback. Your, your DX cluster doesn't work, so there you go. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> file a bug in, uh, in GitHub, and uh, I'm sure he'll get right on it. 
I'm I'm sure he will actually. Uh, but yeah, he was quite responsive on the email. So I mean, he was back and forth pretty uh, pretty quick. So all right, well that's fantastic. It is written in C plus plus and with a cute uh, front end, so uh, should build on most uh, modern Linux machines. So give that one a try if you're looking for a contest logger. I, I hope this turns into something because I'd love to be able to have a go to when people say, "What do you use for contest logging?" Because uh, I don't have an answer to that question yet. Yeah, I'd say right now it's this or TR for Linux. Uh, the TR for Linux is it does work with uh, Ridi, I believe. YFK log is a good contest logger. I don't think it has any of the Hamlib or any uh, integrations like that, and it doesn't do uh, SO2R. It's pretty much uh, single radio, single operator. So yeah. Now we're going to talk about some uh, modems and stuff, packet-type radio. Yeah, I saw this mentioned on uh, a Reddit thread about Linux packet programs, and I kind of was confused at first. I looked at it, I was like, oh, wow, they do WinMore and a bunch of other stuff. And then I realized that the uh, the Linux version is just limited right now to uh, to running a, a node for packet, a BBS, and chat server. And they also have a separate program for APRS mapping and messaging. They do have source for all the other components, I did not try building anything by hand, but I would assume you could probably just do that. The source is available on their website. And uh, I really didn't have anything else with, with that. I mean, I tried to uh, run both of uh, both the Node and the APRS mapping. It all launches up pretty easily. It's all command line based. Yeah, I just, I just thought it was interesting because I hadn't seen it mentioned before. And we also didn't mention what it was. It's LinBPQ. <laughs> Lin BPQ, yeah, sorry. <laughs> I guess we could have mentioned that. Huh? Yeah, well, it's always good to tell you what the hell we're actually talking about. Yeah, if you Google the BPQ32 or check it out in the show notes here, there's links to all of that. But yeah, it, uh, he has a bunch of stuff in there, a bunch of uh, uh, mini uh, programs that uh, talk in the various uh, packet forms. But your mileage may vary if you uh, dig into it a little bit more. Well, there's nothing in the Linux world that actually does win more yet, right? I mean, as far as the WinLink stuff, because it's only the Windows stuff that does it. Yeah, you can currently build. I didn't try building. He has a WinMore, um, uh, the, the, the source is all there to build it, but I, I didn't build it. Yeah, because I was so. looking at PackLink, or PackLink Unix after you talked about it the last time, and WinMore support is, of course, not there in that either. So. No, that's just AX25 and uh, Telnet, and right. yeah, I think that's it, yeah. Well, maybe we should do a little bit of investigation into this and see if we can get the Winmore stuff actually working on Linux. That'd be kind of cool. Or maybe if somebody's listening to this who has actually done it, that'd be even better than it would save us some time. <laughs> yeah, I don't even have a packet thing anymore. So you're the one with the KPC. You need to do it. <laughs> or KPC. you have something similar, right? Well, I, I have an old um, MFJ. Oh, okay. Yeah. But I, I'd have to dig it out of wherever the hell it is. I don't, I don't have the slightest idea where I'd even find that thing right now. Yeah. So. yeah, I haven't been in packet for 10 years, probably. I've got an old Mac 2 LC and a Mac SE30 in a box somewhere, too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, awesome. So, all right, well, cool. Uh, take a look at LinBPQ if you get a chance, and if you actually get Winmore running under it, let us know. We'd love to hear about it. So with that, we're down through our uh, introductory topics for the evening, so we're going to move on to some music, and hopefully I actually have this queued up. Yeah, I guess I do. I don't even know how I came across this one. I I was beaten on Jamendo for half an hour today before I found something that was actually worth listening to. Uh, but there are several tracks that are uh, pretty good by this band from Germany called Breezeless. Uh, this one was off of their Best of Ten Years, The Ultimate Collection album over at Jamendo. It was released back in December of 2014. Runs a shade over three minutes. This particular one is called I Wanna Feel and Love. Uh, there were a couple other ones that I, I don't know, I was kind of waffling back and forth, deciding whether I wanted to play those or this one. Uh, but this is the one I chose. Uh, so we'll listen to it, and then uh, we'll come back with some more, like, actual interesting stuff. <laughs> Thank you. 
and just know Feel my body and just pull Step to me and I just say Be my little girl Close your eyes and just know Feel my body and just pull Step to me and I just say Be my little girl I wanna feel you deep in my soul I wanna love to keep on going Gotta keep on going Gotta keep on going I wanna feel you deep in my soul I wanna love to keep on going Gotta keep on going Gotta keep on going I Want to Feel and Love by Breezeless. That's pretty good. Yeah, I thought that was pretty good. There were actually quite a few good tracks on that album. I had a hard time picking between them, but I'm happy with that one, I guess. So check out Breezeless. Uh, the link, of course, to that particular track will be in the show notes, and you can go to Gemendo and find out all of the stuff they've published. And their music is Creative Commons, so excellent that. So with that, we're going to move on to our announcements and feedback, and we don't really have any announcements for tonight, so we're going to talk about the one bit of feedback we've got, and this is an email I got from Greg, November 1, Delta Alpha Mike, and he says, I have noticed in many places, including on your podcast, that protocols like DSTAR and DMR get called open protocols, often with a caveat about the codec. I am writing to suggest that you be more careful about the definition of open and perhaps explore it in a future podcast. The real point about a protocol being open is whether an ordinary ham can obtain documentation about the protocol that is sufficient to construct an interoperable implementation and then actually implement the protocol and use it. DSTAR Digital Voice fails this definition since it refers to AMBI, which is not openly documented and at least in the U.S. needs a patent license. One can claim that DSTAR without voice is open, but that then has nothing to do with digital voice. DMR is subtly different, as the DMR protocol does not specify a codec. So it's technically true that DMR is open, but the open standard does not support digital voice. The real standard is the combination of the published one and the use of a particular undocumented and patented codec, AMBI2+. This DMR plus AMBI format is what all the ham networks use. Yezu's system fusion similarly fails, even if the basic protocol were to be documented. 7.3, day N1, Delta Alpha Mike. And when I first read this, I can't remember ever saying that D-Star was an open specification. I pretty much thought I always said that D-Star was proprietary. Maybe somewhere back along the line, someone can prove me wrong. The whole reason we talk about doing things using stuff like Codec 2 is specifically because D-Star is based on, at least from the voice perspective, based on AMBI, which is a proprietary encoder chip. That's why we try and talk about using things other than, than D-Star and Yezu System Fusion, which are all based on proprietary technologies. So I didn't realize I was guilty of this, but... Um, Maybe someone in the chat room can tell me differently. <laughs> I'm pretty pretty sure we've always warned against the, the evils of the Ambi chip. I, I seem to recall, like, even in the last couple of episodes, I've said something very much along those lines. And, and we've talked about things like DMR being open in the sense that the specification is open and that the implementation is sort of up to the user's interpretation and that folks like Northwest Digital Radio are using open 
protocols in their chips to implement things like DMR, which which we highly encourage. Yeah. So I'm not sure, you know, where this came from, and maybe I misspoke something, but I thought it was pretty clear that we that we were like anti ambi here. Yeah. Uh, I think that's the hold up for for everyone that uh, is interested in digital voice, and that's why we have things like FreeDV and Kodak too. Well, absolutely, and we had the Northwest Digital Guy John Hayes on here K7VE a couple of episodes ago to talk about the fact that we they were able to implement open protocols, I mean, truly open protocols on proprietary technology, including System Fusion or the, the DR1X, which is a Yezu System Fusion uh, repeater. And that's what we were talking about, not not the proprietary technologies, but the ability to use open technologies on uh, what would traditionally be viewed as proprietary hardware. I guess I shouldn't beat that too much, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think we've beaten this one uh, to death in the past. So, uh, <laughs> well, and, and there are plenty of good sources for learning more about uh, all those protocols and their uh, uh, their Ambi integrations. Everybody just look at Codec 2, find out all the great things that are happening with Codec 2 and all of the great ways it can be used, because it can be used with pretty much everything. The easiest way to use it, though, is with FreeDV, which comes built into um, the Debian Ham Radio Pure Blend. So there you go. Yep, and it's a quick app get install away from just about everything else. Pretty much. Uh, well, yeah. ev- pretty much everything Debian-based, anyway. Everything <laughs> Debian-based, yeah. Right. Pro- there's probably an RPM out there, too. And Oh, I'm sure there is, yep. Probably some kind of build script. Fedora but. and Suze um, have lots of ham radio packages, too. We, we don't talk about them much, but they're out there as well. So anyway, we Cheryl, as, as you may have noticed, is not here, and she's still not here. So <laughs> we don't have a Cheryl's Recipe Corner for tonight. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about the drink that I'm drinking. I'm drinking a Cuba Libre, which... The Wikipedia says people call a rum and coke. But the thing of it is, if you go to a bar and you order a rum and coke, that's what you're going to get. You're going to get a rum and coke. You're not going to get a Cuba Libre. The defining characteristic of a Cuba Libre is that it has lime juice in it. They say, they, being Wikipedia, says that a Cuba Libre is light or dark rum, lime juice, and coke. Which, you know, fine. But what I do is I do basically two parts spiced rum, one teaspoon, or maybe two teaspoons, depending on your flavor preference, lime juice, and it can be fresh lime juice or bottled lime juice. I, I do bottled lime juice because I'm lazy. And two to four parts, depending on your tolerance for the flavor of alcohol, Coke, or in my case, Coke Zero. So that that's my Cuba Libre, and I tend to go pretty strong on the liquor, so... But then I've been a heavy drinker for many years, so there you go. <laughs> uh, well, you could also find that uh, Coke lime and uh, make it with that. Oh, I've, you could I've do that, that too. That, yeah, that's a great way to sort of shortcut the whole lime issue. Yeah, that'd be a wonderful way to do it. So you could talk about a quick drink recipe. That'd be great. Well, uh, yeah, my drink recipe is uh, a Hop Zone IPA from. <laughs> <laughs> no beard. Beard does not find a. A oh, place that, on this program. Not, oh, no, Brewing Company. This is something you can't get all over the world now. This is uh, good stuff. <laughs> sorry, we don't do beer. Oh, okay. Uh, drinks. Uh, yeah. No, I don't do a lot of drinks. Oh, here, I'll, I'll talk about one that, that's pretty good. Um, we have a, uh, a distillery uh, over in Butte, Montana, and I believe it's called Orphan Girl. And you can make a drink called The Dirty Girl. And what it is is they have a creamed bourbon called uh, Orphan Girl Cream Bourbon or something like that. I have it upstairs. And uh, you make it with root beer. So you pour a glass of ice, pour some root beer, and then you uh, drizzle as much of this stuff as you want over top of it. And it's kind of like drinking a uh, a spiked uh, root beer float. It's awesome. That does sound pretty good. Do you want me to do uh, the social media one? Uh, you want to read the social media stuff? Yeah, that way you have some voice left over for the outro. <laughs> okay i think i'm all right but yeah if you want to do that that's fantastic all right so anyway there's a bunch of drink recipes we were going to talk about tar heel pie but bill said he couldn't find the right one so i'll save that for later i got the recipe on a uh, postcard that is the the bee's knees so social media roundup we have donations and subscriptions we have jonas rulo jeremy hall michael Connolly, harrison kyle scott Pettigrew, bob yerk paul griffith ronald ike Where's that Ike? I don't know. Ronald Ike? Yeah. Johnny Kinsey, Brian Smith, John Spriggs, Robert Halliday, Ben Schram, Michael Alio, John Clark, 
Rob Branch Dash, Edward Donnelly, Donald Gover, Alan w- uh, Wilson, Stephen Sanner, Dylan Angle, Jason Marinero, James Blocker, Doug, uh, Doug Reuter, Mike Lasky, Darren King, Petro Karsakis, Donna Farron, Gary Horlick, Bill Stearns, and Bill Piotr. Piotr, Piotr. I know she always does that to her, doesn't she? Yeah. I thought you were just trying to imitate her. That's why you were yeah. screwing them all up. So. <laughs> I'm going to trip up on the same one. Okay, over on Facebook, we have Stephen Hull, Slick Slacker, Tim Nixon, Jeff Cannell. Over on Google+, Plus, we have Jim Stanley, Shihong Lu, Nino Danino, Robbie Pitts. And on Twitter, we have Jim Stanley, Navjot, underscore sing one two three <laughs> check the show notes for that one jl williams zero three kf five flo brent and the boys cs pretorius i'm a bug he's pretty active on twitter we see him all the time he was just at uh southeast linux uh fest there and uh, uh where do they have that at is that in uh was that in charlotte or atlanta this year charlotte charlotte okay mill Aircoms, digital trends and Silambu. Over on YouTube, we have Eric Wettstein. Uh, we have two people on the mailing list, N7JCT joined and KC8QCH. And we have no merchandise sales. Yep, and I expect it to be that way until we come up with some new merchandise. So <laughs> hopefully we'll <laughs> we'll get around to that anyway. So there were a couple of uh, mentions in the chat room for some drink recipes. Um, a couple of uh, the ones on here I can get behind. Uh, N7JCT says one part Bailey's Irish cream, one part butterscotch schnapps, and one part vodka. I can definitely get behind that drink. Sounds awesome. Lord Drakenblut says just put a 375 of 151 in the freezer and down it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And don't worry about going to work the next day. The Linux cocktail is a third ounce of vodka, three-quarter ounce of lime juice, and five ounce of Coca-Cola. That's one and a third ounces of vodka. Oh, I'm sorry. It is one and a third ounces of vodka, right? Three quarters of an ounce of lime juice and five ounces of Coca-Cola. So You almost shorted us on that drink. I, uh, I yeah. did. Yeah. Weak sauce. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what a third ounce of anything is. I just kind of just pour yeah. until I like it. So <laughs> yeah, Throw a couple shots in there. It'll be fine. Right. And uh, James, uh, a little bit before all of that, said Balveni. And I can definitely get behind a couple of fifths, uh, or not a fifths, a couple of... <laughs> Well, fifths, yes, but I meant a couple of fingers of Belveni, yes. <laughs> I, I have the Belveni 12-year double wood, and wow, is that an amazing scotch. If you haven't tried it, you really should. All right, fine. We got to get the hell out of here. I got to push the outro button, which means we'll hear some music, and hey, look, there it is. Cool. So you all who are listening to this can become an LHS ambassador. Visit the website for upcoming events and information on how you can represent Linux in the ham shack at a nearby Linux con or ham fest. We love feedback. You can email us at info at lhspodcast.info. You can comment on an episode on the website, post on Google+, Facebook, or Twitter. Or leave a voicemail at 1909-LHS-SHOW. That's 1909-547-7469. You can visit our IRC channel, Octothorpe LHS Podcast, on Freenode and subscribe to our mailing list. Show merchandise from coffee mugs to t-shirts can be purchased at cafepress.com slash LHS Podcast. You can also help out the show by clicking on the sponsored ads in the right-hand column of the homepage. You can listen to us live and participate in our chat room at 8 o'clock p.m., give or take, Central Time. On every other Monday night, that's Tuesdays at 0100 Zulu time in the summer, 0200 Zulu time in the winter. Our recording schedule and countdown timer to the next episode are on the website. Please check it out at http colon stroke stroke lhspodcast.info for everything you ever wanted to know about the show. And I have added our show to popular podcast aggregators, including... Google Play Music, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, and TuneIn. So we are now available on all of those things, including iTunes. So it's all out there. Go find us. Thanks to all of our listeners live and quasi-live, past, present, and future. We appreciate each and every one of you. And I'm Russ, the host of the program, Linux in the Ham Shack, K5TUX. 
Broadcasting from Studio 3D in beautiful southwest Missouri. And from Red Sky at Night Country out in Billings, Montana, there's Bill, NE4RD. Thanks a lot, everyone. 73. And we'll catch you all in a couple of weeks' time. Take care. Bye-bye. Bring more vodka.